You may be seated and please open your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Now when we, as an elder team, uh, first started to talk about the idea of going through the book of Revelation, we talked about some of the difficulties that come in studying a book like this. We talked about some of the various interpretations that are common amongst believers and yet that differ from from one another. We talked about the blessing, the blessing of spending time in this unique portion of God's Word. And we talked about how we wanted to work to keep the main thing the main thing, meaning we don't want to get lost. We don't want to get distracted down every rabbit trail that we could go down, but we want to continually throughout this study, we want to be asking ourselves questions like, what does this teach us about God? What we see here, what does this teach us about Him? What does this show us about ourselves? What does this reveal to us about Jesus and His glory? And then how does this encourage worship? How does this encourage a love for God and a love for one another? We think that these are important questions because we uh, we may not always agree, and you know this, we've said this now for several weeks, but while we may not always agree on the precise fulfillment of some of these prophecies and on some of the things that John sees here, we can agree. We should agree. I, I think we must agree. We must rest in the big picture truths and principles of what God reveals here about himself and how we should respond in love and worship. Now, I say all of that to say this. Welcome to chapter 7, baby. Welcome to chapter 7. This is one of the most debated and yet one of the most necessary, and, and hear me out, I think one of the most necessary chapters here in, in the book of Revelation. And the only thing that I can guarantee you this morning is this. I guarantee you I will not answer all of your questions about this chapter. That, and you can take that to the bank, baby. You can take that and deposit that. I guarantee I will not answer all of your questions. In fact, I will probably ask more questions than I answer. Because, listen, no matter how you approach these verses, no matter how you interpret this particular chapter, you face some unique challenges. You do. You face some unique challenges. Without a doubt, there are some questions here that I admit I cannot fully answer. There are some things about this chapter that I'm simply going to claim Deuteronomy 29.29 on. You say, what's Deuteronomy 29.29? It's the most wonderful verse. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Amen? But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are some things about this chapter and what John sees here that are a secret and that do belong to the Lord. And there are many other things, many wonderful things, clear, plain, obvious, evident things that belong to us. And so even when we are faced with questions that we cannot fully resolve, again, we want to be asking ourselves these kinds of questions. What does this teach us about God? What does this reveal to us about Jesus? What does this show us about ourselves? And how does this promote worship and love for God and love for one another? So let's find out. If you're in Revelation 7, let's just read the whole chapter 
And you'll see what I'm talking about. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. That's a weird thing to say. Against any tree? What are these winds? Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm, power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen! Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So reads the words of the living God. So why is this such a good chapter? Why is this such a mysterious chapter? Please note it on your outline. Chapter 7, what we see here is the first, the first of three heavenly interludes. There's one here in chapter 7. There'll be another one in chapter 10. There'll be another one in chapter 20. These are necessary pauses or breaks from the action on earth to show us the joy, the security, the strength, and the glory of God and his people in heaven. Again, I want to emphasize that word necessary. These are necessary pauses and breaks 
from the action of the fury and the wrath of God that we see and will see displayed throughout the book of Revelation. Because we need to have a time out. We need to have a pause and to be reminded that heaven rules. In spite of the chaos and the disaster and the destruction that we see, heaven rules. Heaven always rules. Heaven continues to rule. It will forever rule. God's wise and good plan is unfolding as he decrees it, as he declares it to be good and to be so. God's people will not be lost. We need to sow. Uh, we need to know. We need to be reminded that God is. He is wise, just, gracious. He is steadfast in his love. And what I love so much about chapter 7, there is at least one question that it does answer. At at least one, one question that it does answer, and it's the question that ends chapter 6. The question, do you remember the question from chapter 6? If you're there in Revelation 7, you can just look across the page and see it. This is how Pastor Stephen wrapped things up last week as we saw the beginning of the outpouring of God's justice and wrath during that time known as the tribulation. This question is asked in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Will anyone survive? Will anyone be left? after the outpouring of the judgment and the wrath of God? And the answer is, yes, the people of God will stand. The people of God will endure. They will not be swept away. They will not be lost forever. They will live being protected in Christ and by Christ. I think this chapter in some ways answers the prayer of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3.2, where Habakkuk prays, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Think about that. In wrath, remember mercy. Chapter 7 says, check. Mercy remembered. (laughs) Mercy shown. Grace displayed. Yes, the tribulation is a time of great wrath. It is also a time of mercy and grace. You say, how can that be so? We will see it unveiled here. And so, as we look at chapter 7, it's important to see two things up front. In fact, you, you, you probably noticed it as we read through the chapter. Please note this on your outline. There are two parts, two parts to this section. The first part in verses 1 to 8, it seems to take place on earth. It shows the work of God to preserve, protect, and to seal his people. The second part, which takes place in verses 9 to 17, takes place in heaven. And it shows the fruit, shows the fruit of God's work through his people to save many, to save many. So part one on earth, what's happening on earth? What is God doing now? How is he showing mercy and grace? And then part two in heaven, where we see the fruit of God's work in and through his people. Will there be anyone saved during the time of tribulation? It appears yes. But the answer is yes, gloriously so. And so with that in mind, look again at verse 1. Verse 1 says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So what's What's going on here? This is a strange picture. Uh, we've had the introduction of God's wrath being poured out on the earth in chapter 6, but now we are told that after this, John sees four angels holding back, holding back this wind from blowing on the earth and the sea and against the tree. 
these winds that the angels are holding back, they seem threatening, they seem dangerous, and indeed they are. As we will see from verse 3, and then we'll see again next week in chapter 8. You've got to come back for chapter 8. So exciting, so much to talk about, but we'll see more in chapter 8 that, that these winds and these angels represent God's continued judgment, his, his continued destruction. And these four angels, they are given the job to temporarily hold back, to temporarily hit the pause button and, and, and to declare a time out and to take a, a, a brief break. But why? For what purpose? Why would they hold back the next step of God's judgment and plan? What is so important that they wait and they don't proceed? Well, thankfully, we get good explanation in the next verse. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Now, remember, the sun rises in the east. Israel and Jerusalem is east of Patmos. So here John sees another angel rising from the east with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, because remember that almost everything in the book of Revelation is loud, except for at least one thing, which we'll talk about next week in chapter 8. It's so good, but that's next week. So he calls out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, this is what the angel says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, believe it or not, this is good news. Please note it on your outline. God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a people to save and to seal during this time of tribulation. As, as we've said, yes, the book of Revelation, it obviously demonstrates and it shows wrath and God's judgment against those who, who hate what is good against those who, who persist in their sin, against those who stubbornly refuse to see and to confess their need of Christ. But the book of Revelation also clearly demonstrates mercy and grace. It shows God's passion to protect His people. It shows God's heart to draw yet more unto Himself. It shows God's faithfulness. To keep his promises. So the picture here, at least as we start this chapter, it is one of withholding judgment in order to seal his people. God's people will not be swept away. They will be not be lost forever unto judgment. No, God is not careless. God is not absent minded. His people are sealed. They are protected. They belong to him. Please note this on your outline. This sealing on the forehead, it speaks to identification. It speaks to authenticity. It speaks to protection. It speaks to belonging. Who are these people? What are these people? They are sealed. They are sealed by the living God himself, meaning they belong to him. They belong to God. They are truly His servants. In fact, that's what they are called here. They are called servants of God. They are protected by the power of God and not one of them will be lost in the midst of God's judgment. They will serve Him. They will love Him. They will honor Him. This should remind us, as we, as we, as we just pause for a moment, as we think about the scope of redemptive history, 
we should remind us that God is always in the business of saving and preserving and protecting a remnant, a people for himself. Remember, God saved Noah and his family out of the flood. God saved Lot and his daughters out of the mess of Sodom and Gomorrah. God saved Rahab and her family out of the destruction of Jericho. God saved the nation of Israel out of the plagues and out of the destruction of, of, of Egypt. And here in the midst of this tribulation, God saves and seals a people for himself. Now, up to this point, I have worked really hard to communicate the big picture, okay, of what we see happening in these verses. But now we must dig a little deeper as the text leads us into more detail about these ones who are sealed. Look again in verse four. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. You say, awesome. What does that mean? Like, what, what, what did we just read? We just read a lot of names and the same number, like a whole lot of times. What should we think about this? What should we think about this level of detail that we see communicated here? I mean, should we take these verses at face value and see them as pointing to 144,000 real persons, 12,000 from each of the tribe that is listed here? Or are these names and numbers, are they just purely symbolic? Does all this information simply point to the fact that All God's people, all of them, will eventually be saved and sealed. And on top of that, well, why is the tribe of Dan not here? I mean, you probably noticed that as we were reading. You were like, wait a minute, there's a tribe missing here. He didn't say the tribe of Dan. Where did Dan go? Uh, Is it missing? Is, is, Is the tribe of Dan missing? Because in Judges 18 and in Amos 8, the tribe of Dan is described as taking a leadership role in leading the nation of Israel into idolatry. Is that why Dan is not mentioned here? And why, on top of that, why is the tribe of Manasseh included here, but not Ephraim? You probably noticed that as well. And you're like, wait a minute, Manasseh's here. Why not Ephraim? Remember that Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons of Joseph. And as a way to bless and honor Joseph in Genesis 48, Jacob took Manasseh and Ephraim to himself and gave them an inheritance along with his other sons. So again, why is Manasseh listed, but Ephraim isn't, but Joseph is listed here. So we have Joseph here and his son Manasseh, but not Ephraim. Certainly, the line of Joseph would include Ephraim, but it seems strange that Joseph is mentioned here and not Ephraim. And what about Levi? 
Why is Levi mentioned here? You, you, you know this from your studies in the Old Testament that often the tribe of Levi is not included in the list with all the other tribes because the Levi was the priestly tribe and they did not receive the usual land inheritance with, with, with all of the other tribes. So why is Levi included? After hearing all of that, you say, well, what have we got? We got trouble, my friend, right here in River City. <laughs> Capital T rhymes with P. It stands for tribulation, okay? It, all, it always stands for tribulation. Many trees have died to produce commentaries that try to answer all of the questions that I just asked. And at the end of the day, there are, brothers and sisters, there are two main dominant views on these verses. And instead of me trying to chase down every rabbit trail and every question related to these verses. And, 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 and let me just say this too. I, I am happy to do that with you after the service. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm not even joking. Like if you, if you want to talk later about some of the nuance and the specific detail and some of the questions of these tribes, and the, I really am happy. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that with you. But for this morning, for the benefit of our time together, I want to zero in on what are the two main dominant views related to to these verses. I want to get at what is the heart of the issue here. Okay, as, as, as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ have studied these verses for many years, what is the heart? What is the issue? Here it is. Please note this on your outline. This is what we want to just unpack for just a moment. Number two on your outline. Either the numbers presented here in verses four to eight are symbolic and they refer to all believers, meaning the church in general, or they are literal and they refer to 144,000 Jewish believers who will testify, who will witness, who will serve God throughout the time of the tribulation. And listen, for those who hold to that view that see these numbers as, as purely symbolic, as those who see that 12 times 12 times 1,000 equals that which is full and complete and, 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 and perfected. For those who interpret this passage that way and they, and they stress that all the fullness of God's people will be brought into glory and not one will go missing, they will not be lost to the wrath of God, I agree that those truths and principles are generally communicated and reflected in this text. I do. I agree that according to Ephesians 1.13, that believers, Christians, are, quote, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I agree that God knows and loves his children, that not one of them will be lost, that no one will ever snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one will ever snatch them out of, out of, out of Christ's hand. I agree that these verses can and should give hope and confidence and joy to God's people today as we consider the wisdom and the power and the sovereignty of God. And yet, I think there's more that's being communicated here. I don't think there's less that's being communicated here, but I do think there's more. I think this level of detail that, see, that, that, that we see here reflected in the text reveals the fact that God does still have a plan for the Jewish people. 
for ethnic and for national Israel. Brothers and sisters, I don't think it's an accident that the nation of Israel exists today. You've never met an Amalekite, you've never met a Hittite, a Girgashite, or a Meteorite, but you've met an Israelite. You have. And that's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that the Jewish people still exist today. And while the individual Israelites may not know what tribe they belong to, God does and he sees and he knows. I think these verses and what we will see later reflected in the book of Revelation testify to the fact that God's purposes and designs for the nation of Israel will be fulfilled. Israel will one day be that witness nation that God called them to be. One day they will see, they will recognize, they will call on Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior that they wrongly rejected. To quote one of my favorite Israelites, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this in Romans 11, which I think here Paul is anticipating. He is looking forward to that time which we see beginning here in Revelation 7. Paul wrote in Romans 11 saying, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In Paul's thinking, God is not done with the Jewish people. He has not rejected them. And then just a few verses later, Paul speaks so hopefully about what the future holds for his fellow Israelites. He talks about the blessing of the Gentiles being brought into salvation, but he also looks forward to that time when Israel will finally embrace their Messiah. Paul writes in verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their Full inclusion mean. Paul explains here how God intends to use the church. He intends to use the salvation of so many Gentiles to do what? To make Israel jealous. And that there is coming a day when their full inclusion back into a right understanding of the Messiah will result in much praise and glory and a celebration. And then, just a few verses later, Paul speaks plainly of this mystery, of this thing that was once hidden but is now revealed in verse 25. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's a partial hardening until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then here, Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21, which look forward to that time when the Messiah returns to cleanse and to redeem and to rescue Israel. It says this, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then, I think so beautifully and so helpfully, 
Basically, Paul puts all of this in perspective with these words saying, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. Meaning Israel has largely at this moment, at this time in church history, has largely rejected the gospel and opposed Christ. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, as regards the ultimate purposes and plans of God, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Why? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable, depending on how you like to pronounce that word. The point is, God will fulfill his promises to Israel. He will not fail to do all that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David. And I think we see a glimpse of that here in Revelation 7 with these 144,000 Israelites that are loved, chosen, sealed to serve God in a special way during this time. And, spoiler alert, we will see them again. This is not the last time that we will talk about this group. Later, in chapter 14, we will see them obedient to Christ. We will see them representing Jesus. We will see them following the Lamb wherever He goes. And we'll talk more about their work and their ministry in the coming weeks as the book of Revelation further describes them. But for this morning... We simply see them identified, sealed, protected, and set apart for the work of God during this time. Now, before we move on, and before we consider the fruit of God's work through them, there's one more thing that we need to say about this text. One more thing that we need to address um, how this text has been so grossly abused over the years. The cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, have done very strange things to this text in particular. They have stated that these verses apply specifically and only to them. That these 144,000 refer to them, to a specific number of them and only them that will be allowed to go to the glories of heaven and to rule with Christ. Now listen, there are many serious problems with what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and teach. For example, they blatantly reject the deity of Jesus Christ. They say that he is an angel, the angel Mark, uh, the angel, uh, archangel Michael, that he is a created being. They deny salvation by grace through faith. And here they strip this passage out of its context to say, quite frankly, horrible things. This is not a passage about limiting salvation. This is a passage whereby God is promising to continue to bring about his salvation for, in fact, countless people, as we will see in the very next section of, of this chapter. And so, and so with that, we now look at the next scene in, in the second half of chapter 7. And what do we see? We see a massive group that is saved that is coming out of the tribulation, that will be in heaven, that will come out of this time of distress and difficulty. So here in part two now, we shift to that scene in heaven where we see the fruit of God's work through his people. Now, here's how we're going to break these verses down. We're going to see in verses 9 through 17, we're going to see the magnitude of this group the worshipful cry of this group. 
We're going to see heaven's response to this group, the identity of this group, and then the eternal reward, rest, and joy of this group. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Number one, on your outline in verse 9, we see the worldwide magnitude of this group. This is huge. This is an, this is a, an uncountable group as John sees it, as he surveys this scene, that this redeemed group in heaven, they are from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and, and languages. And where are they? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are not consumed. They are standing. They are not destroyed. They are in the glorious presence of God. They are not lost. They are rejoicing in the very throne room of of heaven, I think what we see here, we see Jesus' words from Matthew 24 beginning to be fulfilled in Matthew 24:14. Jesus said, "This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." What do we see here? People from all nations gathered in worship. They are clothed in white robes, meaning they are clean. They have been cleansed and made righteous in Christ. They are now beloved and accepted. And they, what do they have in their hands? They have palm branches. Why? Because it's Palm Sunday. That's the only time Christians are allowed to touch palm branches. That's not true. That's not true. Palm branches were symbols of what? Symbols of celebration. Symbols of deliverance and joy. Palm branches were especially significant and used during the Feast of Tabernacles when, when, when Israel would remember God's provision in their wilderness wanderings. This is a massive, delivered, celebrating people. And what do they say? What do they cry out? Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what are we talking about? Salvation. Who's got it? Our God. Our God has it. Our, our God has it. The Lamb has it. Please note this on your outline in verse 10. We see the wonderful, possessive, worshipful cry of this group. And yes, it is a wonderful, possessive, worshipful cry. This group knows that salvation belongs to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And who is this one? He is our God. He is our God. He is our God who sent His Son, the Lamb. The Lamb who died to take away our sin. The Lamb who rose victorious, conquering sin and death. The Lamb who ascended into heaven and who sent His Spirit. The Lamb who lives to intercede for us and to pray for us. These believers are celebrating and rejoicing in The simple yet profound truth of this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or, as they say it, salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In light of this, do you know this to be true? Do you know this to be true? Can you say with this redeemed group this morning, salvation belongs to our God? Is he your God? Is he the one that you are placing your faith and your trust in? If not, you need to learn from the testimony of this group. You need to learn from the cry of this group. You need to know that salvation and eternal life, it is found in no other place than in the Lamb, than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the, the point is this, hope in Christ and never stop hoping in Christ. Look to Christ and never stop looking to Christ. He is the worthy one. He is the one that we saw in Revelation 5 who is worthy to take uh, the, the, the scroll and to open the seals and to unlock God's eternal glorious plan for His people. He is light. He is life. He is able to save you. And listen, earlier I talked about if you've got questions about the tribes and the and 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 the orders and the things here i would be so happy to talk with you about those things but i'll tell you i would be even more happy to talk with you about this essential truth about who is the lamb what has he done for you how Ought you, I want to say must you, but I cannot compel you to respond as you should to Jesus Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's work, but I beg of you to not reject his call. I beg of you to hear and to respond in faith and joy in this one who came to give his life that you may know life. If you do not know Jesus Christ, turn to him today. There's nothing more important to talk about than this. And as we move into verses 11 and 12, we see how heaven responds to this group. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Please note it on your outline. In verses 11 and 12, we see heaven's all-encompassing, joy-filled response to this group. Okay? There ain't nobody left out. There's nobody sitting on the sidelines, off in the corner, pouting on there, sitting on a chair, distracted, bored. Nobody Everybody is involved here in celebrating and rejoicing in God's work of saving and rescuing this group. All the angels, all the elders, all the four living creatures, they fall down and they worship again. And if you are really clever, if you are really observant, if you have a really good memory, then you notice something about what heaven says here that is slightly different about what heaven said back in chapters 4 and 5. 
there is one word that has been added to the list of things that the Father and the Lamb deserve because of their saving work. And I'll I'll give you a hint. It's not blessing. It's not blessing. Blessing was repeated. It was the theme in in chapters 4 and 5 and 7. It's not glory or wisdom or honor or power or might. All of those are seen in the worship and the praise of heaven in chapters 4 and 5 and 7. So what is new? What is added here in chapter 7 that didn't show up in chapters 4 and 5? It is this word, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. God deserves what? Thanksgiving. And we're not talking about the holiday or your favorite piece of turkey. Thanksgiving. God deserves thanksgiving for what he has done and for what he will do in saving so many. And what I find so interesting about this is that back in Romans chapter 1, a lack of thanksgiving is said to be a dominant and prominent theme in every cold, dead, stale heart. Paul writes in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Brothers and sisters, we see a lot of foolish, darkened hearts in the world that we live in. And it is evidenced by the fact that thanksgiving is not offered to God as it should be. A lack of thanksgiving reveals the darkness of our hearts because we fail to see and we fail to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from where? comes down from our Father who loves us and who cares for us. But here in heaven, what do we see? We see thanksgiving. We see heaven rightly ascribing thanks and gratitude to God. Why? Because He is just and He is gracious. He is righteous and He is compassionate. He is full of wrath and He is abounding in steadfast love. And here, heaven celebrates and rejoices and delights in these truths. Now, who are this, who are these people? What is this large, innumerable, uncountable group that we see? Look at verses 13 and 14 says, Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, that's John's way of saying, I do not know. Look, I I was on earth. I was on Patmos, okay? I got pulled up into this. That's not fair for you to expect me to know anything. I'm here to watch. I'm here to observe, right? And so John Riley is like, I don't know. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, what's interesting, that phrase could be, probably should be, better translated as, these are the ones coming out of the tribulation, the great one. So, you know about tribulation? This is the great one. These are those coming out of the tribulation, the the great one, that time of tribulation that leads up to the new heavens and the and the and the and the new earth. And then this elder says to John, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Note this on your outline. In verses 13 to 14, we see the blood-washed identity of this group. The blood-washed identity of this group. These are those that are coming out of 
I believe, saved out of the tribulation. Many of these are no doubt martyrs who died for their faith in Christ. We'll talk more about martyrs and those who would die for their faith in Christ in coming weeks. I think that from the work of those sealed in verses 1 to 8, many will come to faith in Christ. But here's what's most important. Here's what is most significant. Here's what is emphasized in this text about these individuals. They find their identity in their relationship to Jesus Christ. Who are these people? They are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now think about that. Have you ever tried to wash something in blood? Did it come out white for you? No. No. What's being described here is Jesus' sufficient power to take the filthiest of sinner and to cleanse them and to restore them and to make them new. What's being pictured here is the righteousness, the joy, and the freedom that is available in Jesus. Jesus transforms everyone who comes to him in faith. This is why the Apostle Paul could write so boldly and so firmly saying, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, from this blood-washed relationship, identity, that now I am in Christ and He is the worthy one, what will John hear now? What is heaven like for those who come out of the tribulation? John hears what about heaven for those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb? John is given just a glimpse of the joy that is to come. Look at what John hears next. This is what John hears in verses 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Please note it on your outline. In verses 15 to 17, we see a description of sweet fellowship with and rest in God himself. That is the joy and glory of heaven, God himself. Before the very presence of God in fellowship with this lamb who is worthy, who is here described as a shepherd, sorrow is removed. Tears are forever wiped away. There is an abundance of refreshment here. God leads his 
people to living water. He is living water. Jesus said, come to me and drink. Stop looking elsewhere. Come to me and drink. There is no pain. There is no misery from the curse and from the effects of sin. There is no scorching heat here. There is no need to set up your umbrellas with your fancy water bottles because it's so miserable here because of the humidity. There's no need for that. There is no hunger. There is no thirst. There is only rich satisfaction in God. That is the picture that we are given here. There is no isolation. There is no distance. There is no painful separation. There is shelter and there is peace in the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, um, so what does this interlude show us? At, at the end of the day, what does this interlude teach us and show us? Shows us that we love and worship a God who is faithful to his people. Shows us that we love and worship a God who is abounding in steadfast love. It shows us that even in wrath, God remembers mercy. As, as, as Habakkuk prayed, it shows us that our gracious, our grace, gracious, could say that for a second, our gracious shepherd, he knows how to care for his people, even in the worst of circumstances. He knows. He sees. He can care for you. God is able to restore what has been lost. He is able to bring rest to the most troubled heart. This is our God. Next week, as we go into chapter 8, we end the heavenly interlude and we return again to God's plan, to his unfolding of what he desires to display in his glory and his justice. Don't skip next week. Chapter 8. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Gracious Father, we... This morning, we delight to be your people. We rejoice to read of your plan, of your steadfast love. God, we pray that in the difficulties of life, that we would not lose sight of the truth that we've seen pictured and displayed here, that we would find our hope and our rest and our peace in Christ. God, this is is not just for some future time, but we are meant to have joy and rest and peace in Christ today. Father, we pray that we would know that, that we would experience that, that we would turn away from everything that would distract us from you. Lord, we pray that if there be anyone here amongst us today who does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you open their eyes, that you clear up their ears, that they would see and respond to the glory and goodness of Christ. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.